Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. So if you're at all like me right now, you're on a constant refresh loop, like check the one news outlet, check your Twitter, check another news outlet, check your text messages, maybe grab something to eat, and then rinse, wash, repeat. The reality is that there is a lot to digest. It feels like there's just a flood of information, a flood of news to take in regarding the coronavirus at any given time. As you know, its spread has truly changed our lives in the last few days, and it's really changed our public discourse too. And so here at the Urban Institute, we've done a lot of thinking about where we can add to this discourse. And here's where we landed. We want to make sure that even as all of us are thinking about our own personal safety and security and that of our family, that we're also considering the effects of this pandemic on the most vulnerable members of society. I saw this quote somewhere on Twitter because I am not joking about the refresh loop. And it said that for people with privilege, the impact of coronavirus is a disruption, but for everyone else, it can be a devastation. So in this episode and the next few episodes, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take a look at how the pandemic will impact families and communities in critical ways. Our jobs, our economy, our health, our food security, our education. And we'll do so with an eye squarely on what it means for the most vulnerable members of our society. The first topic we're going to explore is one we are all spending a lot of time thinking about now. Homes and housing. Well, everybody's home. I'm home. You're home. And we've always known that home matters, but obviously it matters more than ever than before because we all have to be home to keep safe. That's Mary Cunningham, vice president of the Metropolitan Housing and Communities Policy Center at the Urban Institute. I spoke with her on Tuesday. We have been in a situation in the United States where there are a lot of people without homes and also people who have housing insecurity. I think we have spent a lot of time previous to the coronavirus highlighting the state of our nation's housing, which is severely inadequate. And even at this moment, when so many of us are spending more time than ever at home, this huge issue may not be getting its due. Recently in the House, they passed a Families First Coronavirus Response Act, and it includes funds for things like testing and sick leave and family medical leave, food aid. But it notably left out anything on assistance for people who are homeless and also assistance for renters. So there are two groups to be thinking about that are really vulnerable. Those that are homeless and those that are on the edge of becoming homeless. I think even more now, there's a lot of urgency because it is not just how will we respond to, you know, people who are homeless on the street, which, you know, quite frankly, has been long ignored. I think recently it's been gaining attention because of the recent rise in people living unsheltered, particularly in high cost cities up and down the West Coast. You know, across the country, there are about 200,000 people who are living unsheltered. 
on the street and about 550,000 people who are homeless on any given night. And what to do about how to protect them during this pandemic is a real urgent problem. The homeless population is also top of mind for Samantha Batko, a senior researcher at Urban. I spoke with her on Tuesday as well. My immediate concern was the people who are currently experiencing homelessness, both particularly those who are sleeping outside, um, which is about a third of the homeless population, and then also the people who are living in shelters. That was the, the first thing that struck me was that the population is one that it would be particularly vulnerable to the spread of the coronavirus. People experiencing homelessness are at particular risk for this kind of health concern. The single adult homeless population, particularly the population living outside, is already older. They oftentimes have more health conditions than other non-homeless, non-unsheltered populations. And so in general, based on the CDC's guidance alone, would be more at risk for transmission and being more severely ill. And what we know from the past is that people experiencing homelessness often have other transmissible diseases at higher rates. When you think about TB or hepatitis A, people experiencing homelessness get those at greater rates than the non-homeless population. Some of that is related to like the circumstances in which they're living. And so people who are sleeping outside, oftentimes in encampments, you know, they don't have access to cleaning, um, like personal hygiene materials. They are living in close proximity with one another and they're not necessarily getting medical attention and they may not even know the symptoms to look for if they were getting sick. And the situation in homeless shelters can also be problematic. Then people in shelters, you know, they are living in very close quarters. They're oftentimes sharing rooms with bunks or cots that are not far apart. They're certainly sharing bathrooms, even if there are sort of separate rooms. And they're also sharing eating spaces. And so that was my initial thought was that given the high level of communicability that were, is being reported, that it would spread very quickly amongst this population. But living conditions aren't the only concern. Like hospitals and medical centers, it's really important to have staff at these shelters to support the people staying there. And it can be risky for them, too. Over time, as I talked to service providers, shelter providers, people in the communities, and just got a sense from them about where their concerns lay, other things started to emerge. Concerns around being able to staff shelters. So both if the staff get sick and can't come to work, and if their kids' schools get closed and their staff has to figure out how to deal with their kids being at home and being able to be at work, you know, shelters really can't run without staff. You can't do appropriate screening of clients without staff. And so figuring out if people are symptomatic becomes difficult if you don't have staff to do those screenings. So this is clearly a very concerning issue for people experiencing homelessness. But some might say, well, that's actually not that many people, is it? Like, if I stay away from people living on the streets, then it shouldn't be an issue for me. But the public health reality is different. Failing to care for a high-risk population could have severe consequences, not just for them, but for the rest of society as well. In some places, the homeless population is very large, unfortunately, sort of tragically very large, including like the unsheltered population is really large. And if it were to spread, 
quickly in that population with the medical vulnerabilities and medical frailty that a lot of the people in the unsheltered population have already, the homeless population alone could be enough to overwhelm the public health system. We know that the biggest push here around flattening the curve is not necessarily that we'll be able to make a difference in the number of people overall who get sick, but keeping the number of people who are ill at the same time down is advantageous to all because it means that medical assistance is more readily available to those that are ill. So not only do we have in this country a lot of people who are currently homeless, but we have many renters as well who are already struggling. Sadly, at any time, not just in the current circumstances, there's a very, very, very large population at risk of homelessness. So there is about 11 million renters who have what is called severe housing cost burden. That means that they're paying more than half of their incomes toward rent. And then we also know that there are um, several million people who are living in what are called doubled up situations. And so coming from an apartment that you rent yourself and also coming from a doubled up situation are the two of the most common living situations prior to homeless shelter entry. So we know that there is already an extremely large population that is at risk of homelessness without the type of economic disruption that we're talking about now. So the challenge for people to pay rent, to not fall behind on their mortgage is very real. And it's a major concern that people could start being evicted from their homes. There have been jurisdictions locally like Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Miami-Dade, Austin that have all banned evictions recently during this pandemic. They've done that either through executive measures or court orders. And I think others will follow suit But I think we can't rely on a patchwork of jurisdictions thinking about this. I think we need to have a national moratorium on eviction. And that is really important so that we can have just a little bit of time to catch up with rental assistance, emergency rental assistance through homelessness prevention and rapid rehousing programs. But the reality is you can't just freeze evictions and not think about the other ramifications. So it's likely that if they do some sort of eviction freeze, the governments will need to think about some sort of relief for landlords as well, because landlords have mortgages to pay. And so any type of assistance that helps people who are at risk of losing their housing comes with sort of other ramifications that the rent still has to be paid in some capacity. So these become very large programs pretty quickly. So here's the big question. What can federal, state, and local policymakers do to help now? Our number one priority right now should be to help people who are not in homes get into homes. And I think that is expanding the availability of temporary shelter, There are different ways to do that. There's vehicles that already exist, for example, federal surplus properties. So old bases or old office buildings that the federal government owns, all of that can be reconfigured and commissioned to provide temporary housing. And there is a mechanism for doing that. Another way that governments at the federal and local levels can help is to provide emergency funds to shelters and help them stay open longer. One of the challenges before COVID-19 was that most shelters have 
limited hours. They're only open at night. People experiencing homelessness have long relied on libraries, which we know are shutting down to adhere to social distancing measures. And I think shelter providers across the country are figuring out how to adjust to doing business differently. So many are having to extend their hours and stay open during the day. Also, lower barriers to entry. So this is going to require more staffing and more resources to support these efforts to really make sure that shelters can take care of the people who are currently living and sleeping in their beds. And Sam agrees. We've been encouraging both on the local level that places think about ways to temporarily expand shelter capacity to bring people indoors. And at a minimum, to be increasing outreach in order to get more resources out for personal hygiene and make sure that to the extent possible, you're helping people stay clean. And then also that the federal government should step in and help to make, you know, more federal properties. There is already a mechanism for unused federal properties to be used by um, the homeless service system, expediting that process to make it happen quicker without putting any requirements around how the jurisdiction has to use those outside of the fact that they be used for a homeless population would be very beneficial at this point because getting people inside, getting them in beds that are more than six feet apart, having the capacity to do isolation when people do get sick in these programs is going to become highly critical to making sure that the entire homeless population writ large does not become sick and need a public health response immediately. Mary has another idea that localities can also pursue. I think another approach that we have to start to think about is how to use hotels, which are currently empty. How can we be using hotels to help provide temporary space, both to care for people as they're sick, but also to help people who are homeless get into spaces where they can actually adhere to social distancing? And Governor Newsom in California recently issued an executive order to allow states to commandeer hotels and medical facilities to treat coronavirus patients. Samantha says it will be key to have public health and homeless service systems in close collaboration when tackling this crisis. I think one thing that we didn't really touch on is the the real necessity within individual jurisdictions for their public health agencies to have a strong collaborative relationship with the homeless service system and for them to prioritize the homeless service system for resources, be that staffing resources, protective gear, cleaning supplies, but thinking about the homeless serving programs in their community as a high priority for any activities they're taking with regards to the virus. We can also look back to efforts to support families at risk of becoming homeless during previous economic crises, most recently in 2008. There was a program called the Homelessness Prevention and Rapid Rehousing Program that was passed as part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And so that was a response to the Great Recession. It basically pumped $1.5 billion into the homeless service system over the course of the three years from 2009 to 2012. And 
The goal was to prevent homelessness for people who were at risk and to help people who had entered homelessness as a result of this economic downturn to exit quickly. And it worked. Um, You know, it served over a million people in the three years. And the vast majority of them either didn't enter homelessness if they were given prevention dollars or exited homelessness quickly and didn't return if they were given rapid rehousing dollars. These are big steps. And really, they might be just first steps, but they're probably necessary for starting to tackle this pandemic. I think this is going to be very different. Right now, we're in a national emergency, so we are going to have to take radical steps to respond. You know, we should be using all of our resources and assets to deploying all of these that we have in our toolbox to really respond to the problem. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, as we fight the coronavirus pandemic, there are two groups that are really important to remember. Those that are homeless and those that are on the edge of becoming homeless. If coronavirus spreads quickly for these groups, the homeless population alone could be enough to overwhelm the public health system. Two, in order to help stop the spread among people experiencing homelessness, some top priorities right now are to help people who are not in homes get into homes and to put a moratorium on evictions. We can also provide emergency funds to shelters and help them stay open longer and look back to previous efforts to support families at risk of becoming homeless during previous economic crises. And three, the bottom line is that this will require a huge response to help this population during this unprecedented time. So that's our show. Big thank you to Mary Cunningham and Samantha Batko. They just wrote a blog on this topic that you can find on our show notes page at www.urban.org slash critical value. And thanks to all you critical value listeners. If you enjoyed the show, please take a second to leave a rating on iTunes. Also, thanks to producers Jacinth Jones and Katie Smith. And thanks to our sound editor, Riley Byrne from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. And in this time with so much heavy news and so many heavy topics, I thought it'd be fun to share a few brief clips from Samantha and Mary with how they're handling the current moment of being a professional, working from home, and being a parent who is working from home. Um, I wouldn't say that these are tips on how to get by, more like descriptions of where we're at, but here's what's going on in the real world for urban researchers. To start, Sam is a mother of three. My husband and I are both working full time and we have three children at home with us. One who is a freshman in high school, one who's a first grader and one who's a 10 month old. So we are sort of all over the place. We created a schedule that has school and housework and recess and PE and reading. And we're also trying to, you know, do naps twice a day. And so I don't know, it's very busy. And Mary is a mother of one kid who's really staying busy while staying at home. She was, uh, yeah, listening to a podcast this morning on my elliptical machine. After having done three hours of yoga. Yeah, that was actually before the yoga. She has a lot of energy. She needs to get her wiggles out. And she did cosmic yoga for three hours and probably about 15 minutes on the elliptical machine. I'm really impressed by your daughter. (laughs) Yeah, I I need to do three hours of cosmic yoga. So for myself, the Critical Value team, and my two kids who are also my current colleagues in podcast production. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks to 
Um, listening to the podcast.